And so the next four weeks, we're in the book of Isaiah. This morning in the seventh chapter of this uh, book, from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, let me ask you to stand as I read aloud from the word of the Lord. You can find the passage in your bulletin. You could follow in your own Bibles. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Would you please be seated and would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would be here with us. We thank you for the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promises that look forward to his coming. We thank you that we now stand on this side looking back on the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we ask this morning, not only through the preaching of the word, but as we celebrate together the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would be at work here among your people that you, our Lord and our God, would show us your Son, Jesus Christ, that your Spirit would work in our hearts to calm and quench our fear, that we would see our great hope in Jesus Christ, that we would rest upon him, that our hearts would grow in the assurance that we have in him, that we would be strengthened, that we would glorify you in the process. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, We ask all of this. Amen.
This morning, as we open up the seventh chapter of this book of Isaiah, we see the main character here is King Ahaz. Now, Isaiah's book is focused on the work of Isaiah the prophet, and his ministry and his prophesying spans at least three different kings, but in the seventh chapter this morning, we're introduced to King Ahaz. Now, to understand what's happening with the king and what's happening in Judah at this moment, a brief history of the kings and the kingdom of Israel is worth exploring. You know that the first king of Israel was King Saul, and King Saul was not a great king, and so God found for himself a king that was after God's own heart, and that was King David. King David came from a a humble beginning in the house of Jesse, and God called David to be the king, and though David sinned, he repented of his sin, he followed the Lord God, and he's known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. Now, the son of David was King Solomon, and King Solomon was the one who wrote the book that we just read, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is considered maybe the second greatest king that ever was the king over Israel, but Solomon had his own problems. And at the end of Solomon's life, when the, uh, the kingdom was handed over to Solomon's son, very quickly after Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided into two. There's the ten northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. And if you remember through the history of Israel, the, the ten northern tribes of Israel are largely ungodly. They, they leave the Lord God, and their existence is mostly defined by disobedience and the worshiping of the gods of the peoples around them. Judah in the south uh, uh, oscillates or vacillates between faithfulness and faithlessness, and they go back and forth, and there are some good kings in Judah, and there are some poor kings in Judah. Ahaz, who we're introduced to in the seventh chapter, is the ninth king after King David. He's the ninth king after King David. There will be 14 kings in Judah before they eventually uh, are sold into slavery and become captives in Babylon. But this King Ahaz is the ninth king after David. He becomes king when he's only 20 years old. Okay? So Ahaz's father, Jotham, was overthrown by the people. Though Jotham was a good man, he was overthrown by the people. And Ahaz replaces him on the throne in his 20th year. And we're introduced to King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, and we find him in the midst of a crisis of fear, okay? A crisis of fear. His heart has now been captivated by the fear of the peoples who surround Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And so we read in the first verse, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. And so what had happened was Ahaz, ruling over the two southern tribes of Judah in Jerusalem, had been surrounded by the nations around them. Now, when the text says uh, they had been surrounded by Syria, Syria is the collection of the smaller nations that surrounded Israel. It included the Moabites and the Ammonites. It included Damascus. And we're told in the passage this morning that not only did the peoples of the nations surround Judah, but they were also joined by Israel the ten northern tribes of Israel. They joined in surrounding the city. 
And it says in verse 1, they could not yet overcome it. We're told in the book of 2 Kings that the battle looked something like this. It's a description of a besieging or a sieging of the city. And so the nations had gathered, they had surrounded Jerusalem, and they were not allowing goods and services and people to come into the city, nor to go out of the city. And you can begin to see why King Ahaz and the people of Judah were gripped by fear. The description that we're given in verse 2 says this. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, that Syria is working together with your brothers from the north, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay? A very vivid description of the fear that had begun to grip their hearts that had enamored them and had enraptured their imaginations, had consumed their attention. For many of you who have lived in the city of Lynchburg for at least 10 years, you'll remember the derecho, okay? Some of you remember the derecho is this weather pattern that came through Lynchburg, and you remember the winds were like 70 miles an hour, and it knocked down trees all across the city, and most of us were without electricity for about a week, right, or more. Uh, it was a very interesting time. I look back on it with a little bit of nostalgia. We all got to stay home for a week with our families, okay? Without electricity, candles, and, and the heat of the summer. Uh, but I don't know if you remember the events that led up to the derecho, but the week before, the weather patterns were very strange in Lynchburg. There was times of uh, uh, high heat and of great winds. Two days before the derecho, I had taken a group of teenagers, and we were uh, doing some backcountry camping, and we had gone camping on Cole Mountain in Amherst County. And I told them, this is going to be a rustic type of camping, camping, so don't bring your tents, don't bring any food, we're just going out and we're going to enjoy the land. And that's what we did. We set up hammocks in the trees, but that night it was terribly windy. And the whole night, no one slept because all you could hear was trees falling in the woods. Branches and trees falling. And, and these teenagers would gather around the fire like three in the morning, and they were saying, well, should, should we leave? Should we hike out? What do we do? I said, we're just going to hunker down here. We're going to pray that a tree doesn't fall on top of us, okay? All night long, listening to the trees, waving back and forth, crashing against each other and crumbling to the ground. This is a description that God gives of the heart of Ahaz and the people of Judah at this moment. Their hearts are trembling. You could imagine them shaking in their boots. Their knees are knocking, and they are gripped with fear because the people of Syria had surrounded them. And that's what defines really all that we know about King Ahaz. He is a king who is largely defined by the fear that gripped him. Now, I want to tell you something this morning. As we, as we look at this passage, to understand the redemptive work of God in this world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to understand the event that we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, we must understand it against the backdrop of fear, okay? Jesus Christ comes into a world that is gripped with fear is gripped with fear. Listen, here's how I would describe fear. Fear is a speculative, oppressive, and universal problem with all of humanity. I say it's speculative because it's not based upon facts, nor is it based upon events in the present. It's based upon a speculative disposition about the future, isn't it? Okay? When we are gripped by fear, we are thinking or we are feeling or we are convinced that something will come to pass in the future as if it has already come to pass, as if it's real or true. 
And you see that in the passage, don't you? Because verse 2 says, though they were surrounding the city, uh, they could not yet mount an attack against it. So the reality of the situation is that the people of Syria are surrounding Jerusalem and the people of Judah, but they haven't yet mounted an attack against it. Nothing has come to fruition. Nothing has come to pass. But fear, the speculative disposition about the future, had gripped the hearts of the people. So it's speculative. It's speculative. It's oppressive. That is, it, it grips us. It consumes us. It, is, it enslaves us. It enamors us. It will uh, take all of our attention and all of our energy because that's the nature of fear. The more we give it, the more it takes. And you can see that in verse 2 because the description of the hearts that are shaking makes it seem as if the people of Judah could think of nothing else. They could talk of nothing else because all of their attention was now devoted to the fear that consumed them. And fear is a universal problem because not only is it true of Ahaz, not only is it true of the people of Judah, but you as the readers who now sit here and read this, I guarantee you can resonate with the people of Judah. You could say, yeah, I understand that type of fear. I have felt that before. I have known that. You might even say, I feel that right now. That's the type of fear that grips my heart. And I tell you the truth, it is a universal problem for all of humanity. Since the fall of man, we are in a fear crisis, okay? That our hearts are constantly being consumed with fear. That is fear of the future that consumes our attention that is true of all humanity. And so this morning, as we talk about the incarnation, we must recognize that the coming of Jesus Christ is God's answer to the fears of man. It's God's answer to the things that consume us, the things that oppress us, the things that we speculate about, the things that we fear in our lives, okay? God's answers to these things. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, what that means, but simply see that Ahaz and the people of Judah are consumed with fear. Now, as we continue reading this account in Isaiah chapter 7, we begin to see the words of God through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz responding to the fears of Ahaz. But let me give you a little more background on why Isaiah begins speaking the way that he does. Because here, when we read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we find out what the next thing that Ahaz does is, and it's very simple. Once uh, Judah is surrounded by the people of Syria, King Ahaz makes a decision, and he goes to the king of Assyria, two different groups of people. Syrians are a small group of people. The Assyrians are a large group of people. He goes to the king of Assyria, and he pleads with him, and he says to the king of Assyria, if you will come and save us, we will become your slaves. We will do anything for you. We will give our lives to you. We will commit ourselves to you if you, the king of Assyria, will only come and will save us. And so he gives the people of Judah over to the Assyrians. This is the beginning of the steps that we will see that lead to the captivity and the bondage of the people of Israel and of Judah. So he sells the people of Judah to the Assyrians. And in response to this, this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah beginning in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands 
at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. You hear what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah? He says to Ahaz, be quiet. Do not fear. For the Lord God has said, this thing will not happen. Right? And so the speculative fear that gripped Ahaz's heart, he hears from the living God who doesn't speculate about the future, who knows and has planned the future. And the living God says to Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, he says, tell him, these things will not come to pass. You can take it to the bank. It is a done deal. Syria will not overtake Judah. It will not come to pass. And the, the question that Isaiah is asking of Ahaz is a very simple one. Let me summarize it like this. Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz and the people of Judah at this moment, he's saying, do you believe that God is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do? It's a simple question, okay? Ahaz, do you believe that the Lord God is God and that he will do what he has said he will do? Now, at this point, it's probably important to give you a little bit more about King Ahaz, okay? King Ahaz, if you're unfamiliar with him, King Ahaz, in, in my estimation, the worst king that Judah ever had. Worst king. And that's saying something. Got a lot of bad kings, okay? Here's what we know about Ahaz leading up to this moment. First of all, years before this, Ahaz had already begun ransacking the temple of God, okay? So there's the temple standing in Jerusalem. And Ahaz had, been, uh, had begun this methodical process where he began to remove the tables and the altar and the, the things that anointed the walls and decorated the walls of the temple. He had begun to take those things and he had begun to melt the metals, the fine metals, the golds and the silvers, and he had begun to form idols of the gods that surrounded them. And so he had formed an idol to the god of Damascus and an idol to the god of Syria and an idol to the god of the Assyrians. And once he had done that, he began to form other idols and to send them to the kings. It says that he sent idols to the, kings, the king of Assyria as a gift, an offering to them, Okay. And so as we, we think about King Ahaz, here's what I want to say. The problem with Ahaz is not that he doesn't have a hope or a faith, okay? The problem with Ahaz is that he has a hope or a faith in the wrong places. He's invested his hope in things that will, will disappoint him, that will not ultimately save him. But he's not a man without faith. He has a lot of faith. He has enough faith to go in the temple of God to melt all the things that God had appointed for his worship to form idols and to pray to them and to send them off as offerings to the kings of the other nations. I mean, this is a guy who's full of faith. Faith in the wrong thing. If that's not enough, let me tell you, this is why I think he's the worst king ever in the history of Israel. Second Kings chapter 5 tells us after he had done this, you know what he did? He took his oldest son and he sacrificed him to the gods of Syria. Okay? Sacrifice his oldest son to, to the gods of Syria. Yeah, 2 Kings 5 says, it. Go, you can find it, 2 Kings chapter 5. You think about that, okay? It's not as if he was a man who didn't care about his family. You, people often, they care about themselves and, the, and their own family, that's true. But what it says about King Ahaz, but he was a man who was living by faith, so much faith in the gods of the world that he felt called to sacrifice his own son and he didn't withhold his son. 
He gave him as a sacrifice to the gods of the Syrians, the gods of Damascus, and the gods of the Assyrians, okay? He's a man who was living by faith. Again, faith in the wrong things, all right? And so we, we see Ahaz this morning as the king over Judah who had already committed himself to the gods of the peoples, trusting that they would deliver for him. Now, let me tell you something that's important this morning to understand the passage. There is a very close, intimate connection between fear and hope. There's a close, intimate connection between fear and hope. You see, hope is the things that we we invest our confidence in, our trust in, believing that they will alleviate, remedy, or assuage our fears, okay? So there's the connection, fear to hope. You could, if you were graphing your fears on a graph, you could, you could put a point that represents your fears and you could draw a straight line through fears and it will lead you directly to your hopes, okay? What are the things you're hoping on? What are the things that you're idolizing? What are the things that you're trusting in? You just look at the fears in your life and you will find very quickly the idols of your heart. See, the way it works for Ahaz is very simple. Second uh, Chronicles 28 23 says this about King Ahaz. It says, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. Okay, so Damascus defeating him in battle. He sacrificed to their gods and he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. You can see the close connection, right? He saw the gods of Syria He believed that they had delivered for the people of Syria, and he saw his own fear, and his fear is losing the battle, it's losing the kingdom, it's eventually it's dying, and he said, okay, there's the gods, they help them, they'll do it for me, therefore there's a direct connection from fear to hope, I'm going to invest my hope in those gods. And so he did. He was was a man of great faith. Faith in the wrong things, okay? One of the questions to ask of ourselves this morning, very simply, what things are we investing our hope into? We, we, we talked about it through the book of Ecclesiastes, not a new, not a new idea, not a new theme, but we, we must constantly be asking ourselves, what are the things that we are hoping in? What are we idolizing in this world? What are the things that we're, we're making to be ultimate things that we believe will remedy the fears of our hearts? And again, I would encourage you, ask the basic question, what are the things that I have fear over? What are the things that are consuming my attention? What are the things that are oppressing me? What are the things that I'm enslaved to? The great fears of my heart, and from there, you will easily find the idols of your heart. You will easily find the things in this world that you are trying and attempting to find hope, confidence, and meaning in because you believe they will remedy your fears. I've mentioned this before. There's so many great examples from our world. I'll give you two. Okay, first of all, our world, maybe the greatest fear in society today is the fear of death. And it's different than in generations past because in generations past, you were always being confronted with death, right? You had children who would die, you had family members, you lived in agrarian cultures typically, and you'd be killing animals. I mean, just death was a constant part of life. But today, death is not a constant part of our life. And so we have this great fear of the unknown. And so fear of death grips the hearts of many people today, I believe. And if you trace that theme through the fears of our culture, you will quickly find the idols of our culture. Right? And so we, we begin to idolize exercise, and we begin to idolize uh, elective surgeries that make us look younger, because if we look younger, then of course we get to avoid death, right? That's the way we at least convince ourselves. And we begin to idolize the way we eat and the way we care for our bodies and the, the diets that, that we, we, we do. And, you know, that's the, that is the, the symptom of our modern culture. I mean, we're a diet culture. Everything's about diets. I was, when I was 
uh, writing this, I was thinking about diets, and I thought, um, diets to me are comical because it seems like it's the same diet, but it always gets a new name, doesn't it? Do you, um, okay, I'm not the only one. Somebody was telling me at a, a, about a diet over Christmas break, and I said, oh, I know that. That's the Atkins diet. And they said, no, it's not the Atkins diet. Um, that's right. It's called the paleo diet now. And they said, no, it's not the paleo diet. I, I went through about like three diets that I think are all the same, but they have got new names. Listen, this is the culture. We idolize those things. They become ultimate to us because we believe that the fear of death may be remedied with these solutions. And so we, we pursue them at all costs. It's why you look at the pop culture that we celebrate and we idolize youth and beauty. Those things are the opposite to us of death. So the aged and the wisdom, they have no part in our culture because that is really getting close to death. All right? And so we have this fear of death Therefore, we idolize those things. You could do this with any fear. Talk about the fear of irrelevance. Fear of irrelevance is a big one in our society. Why are we so consumed with social media? Why are we so consumed with surrounding ourselves of people who will hear us and will recognize us and affirm us? It's because we're afraid of irrelevance. We're afraid that no one will know who we are and what we're doing and will have no significance, and we want to have significance, and so we idolize these things of the world because we believe that they will satisfy those fears. That's the second thing we see in this passage. Ahaz, just a great example of humanity, trying to remedy the fears of our hearts that consume us with the things of this world. But listen, here's the, the greatest thing about this passage. As much as this passage is about you and I and our fears and our idols and we can learn a lot about ourselves, this passage has so much more to say about the living God and about his faithfulness to us, and about who he is and what he's doing in this world, that begins, I believe, in verse 10, okay? So verse 10, here's what's happening. Uh, uh, Isaiah has spoken to Ahaz, and Ahaz is basically like, okay, thanks, Isaiah, but you're too late. I have already committed myself as to the gods of Damascus, Syria, and Assyria. And so Isaiah makes one more attempt, and he says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And you see what Isaiah is saying to him. Listen, do you want evidence that God will do what he says he will do? Just ask for a sign. He will give you a sign. Right? The sign that is being promised here is a sign of the authenticity of God, of the reality of his presence, and of the effectual work of God in this world. Do you want a sign that Judah will not be conquered? Do you want a sign that you will be safe under the wings of the living God? Ask for it and he will give it. Any sign you want, breaking into the normal course of history, breaking the scientific laws, God will enter in and he will do something miraculous. Just ask for it. Any sign in heaven, any sign in hell, just ask for it. And Ahaz responds in verse 12. It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah says, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that that you weary my God also. And at first blush, you may think, well, Ahaz sounds like a pretty humble God, not wanting to put God to the test, but that's, that's not Ahaz. It's not, nothing uh, that is consonant with Ahaz's character. It sounds more like Ahaz is basically saying, Isaiah, we're not gonna go there. I'm not gonna put God to the test, but what he really means is, I have no use for this, okay? I have no use for this. I have made my case. My hope is in the Assyrian." I have no use for a sign from God, and we're moving past this. And Isaiah says, listen, you have wearied the people of Judah, and that's one thing, but do not weary the Lord God, okay? 
And, and then something happens in verse 14, okay? Most significant part of this whole chapter. And if you've been following the story, this is a, a normal course of events in the, in the normal history that's happening to a normal person in Judah, the king Ahaz, through the mouth of a prophet. And everything has been normal to this point. But in verse nine, uh, 14, we take a hard 90-degree turn, right? Because this is totally different than anything that we've talked about up until this point. Essentially, God says to Ahaz, I, I, I knew, I knew your heart. I knew that this would be your disposition. I knew that you would not want to sign. I know that you've sold yourself to the Assyrians. I know this, but it's part of my plan to offer a sign. Not a sign so much for you, but a sign for all of history and for the church and for the people of God, a sign of my faithfulness. Here it is. You don't want a sign, I'll give you one anyway. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is such a significant promise from God. Listen, he uses the opportunity. He uses the opportunity to go way past Ahaz and to give a wonderful, beautiful sign of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's significant for so many reasons. Not, not the least of which is this is the promise that a virgin shall have a child, right? Mind-blowing. How does that happen? But more than that, he says his name will be called Emmanuel. Uh, em, the beginning of that word, em, is the Hebrew prefix that means with. Manu, the, the middle part of that is the, the plural, so with us, and then L at the end is God, God with us. And let me tell you something, this doesn't simply mean that, yes, God is with us or that God will be with us. It's not a statement of something about a third person. It is a declaration that this is God with us, okay? Listen to how one lexicon put this. The name Emmanuel lacks the verb to be. And it denotes a passive presence of the Most High God. In other words, the name Emmanuel does not emphasize God working in us or even working for us, but rather it is an indication of God coexisting with us. It reflects descriptions of the presence of the Lord. And so the name Emmanuel, it only appears twice in the Old Testament, twice through the mouth of Isaiah, saying that one day God will be with us, right? And Jewish parents didn't have children to say, I think I'm going to name this child Emmanuel, because that would have been heresy, okay? Because it's not simply a declaration of something that God will do. It is a declaration of who this person is. This is God with us. It's a significant name. And the promise from Isaiah is essentially God saying to Ahaz and Judah and the rest of the followers of God, it is essentially God saying, listen, one day, very God of very God, God from eternity past to eternity future, God who is uh, cannot be contained to a, a place or time, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, a God who always was and is and always will be, a God who is spirit and not contained by body, that God one day will come in human flesh. And he will coexist with us. And he will be born of a virgin. Can you imagine how mind-blowing the promise must have been? Can you imagine? Essentially, God says to Ahaz, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to my people. And, and, and this morning as we wrap up this passage, let me just say a few things, okay? This is a significant promise. And, and what we 
we see in this passage is that this answer to Ahaz's fear is also the answer to our fears. That we don't believe in our hearts that God is who he says he is, that he loves us. We don't believe that he will do all that he has said he will do. And you see, the disbelief of the human heart is also often quenched by evidence. If we see enough evidence, then we will change our belief. Okay? If we see enough evidence, then we will change our belief. And God essentially breaks into history in the midst of a war between Judah and Syria, into the chaos that's happening in the southern tribes of Israel. And he says, I will offer you the greatest evidence of my existence and of my faithfulness, and I will do what I have said I will do. I'm coming to you. And I want to tell you this morning, this is the way that God always works. It's the way that God always works. You see, we have the fear that grips our hearts, and we look for a remedy in this world, but we realize, as we talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes, we realize that we cannot save ourselves. And God says through the mouth of Isaiah to Ahaz, a message for you and I that I am coming to you. You're not going to come to me. It's not possible. You will not seek me. You will be consumed by your fears. You will look for answers in this world, but you know what? I'm coming to you, and I'm coming in the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin, coming to save. And here's what I want to leave you with this morning. I, I think we're in an infinitely better place than Ahaz, the king of Judah, for a variety of reasons, okay? But we can resonate with him in the way that fear grips our hearts. And we can resonate with him in the way that we try to satisfy that fear with the answers of this world. Okay? We, can, we can resonate with him, but I say we're in a far better place than he is because he gets the sign from Isaiah and he has no categories for this. He has no understanding of what's being promised. Could you imagine him standing there listening to Isaiah speak? Right? Isaiah says, well, listen, I'm going to give you a sign that God, God will save his people. And Ahaz like, okay, I don't believe this, but I'll listen. And Isaiah says, the virgin shall uh, bear a child and his name will be called Emmanuel. And you can imagine Ahaz like, okay, what, am I supposed to wait for nine months? Like, uh, where do I find this virgin? What in the world does it have to do with me? I imagine it made no sense to him, and there was just no impact in the heart of Ahaz. But I say we're in an infinitely better place because we have the great privilege of being on this side of the incarnation, okay? We, we get to look back and we know through the testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the mother of Jesus and the testimony of Zechariah and through the testimony of those who saw him and the testimony of his apostles and the testimony of those who were there at the time, we know through their testimony that the child was born of a virgin, that his name was called Emmanuel. We know that through the testimony of the angels. We're in an infinitely better position. Because we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ and we have read of him. And the Spirit of God now works through the words that have been given in the Word of God to assure our hearts that we have indeed seen the living God. And it's very beautiful. God has given to us a sign. He's given us a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. He has given us a sign and is a signifier, not only that he is who he says he is, but he will do what he has said he will do. Listen, if fear grips your hearts, let me just say this. God has given us a sign through his son, Christ Jesus, and it's a sign of this, 
that those who love him, he works all things for their good. Those who love him, he works all things out for their good. Do you believe that? That's the answer to your fears. That, that is the promise that God has given. That is what is signified in the coming of Christ. That is what, what is represented in the life that Christ lived. That is what is accomplished at the cross and is now offered freely to us. And those who have received the gospel of good news in Jesus Christ can now live life without fear. And yeah, we'll be afraid. We'll have fears at times, but our answers are not found in this world. Our answers are found in the living God who has signified to us his love. And we follow the Lord Jesus Christ who has accomplished this on our behalf. It's what we see in the word of God. It's what we'll celebrate today at the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the story of Ahaz. We know that there is great pain in your heart having to watch the people of Israel sell themselves into bondage and into slavery. Having to watch the line of kings from David. Many kings, Lord, worshiping the idols of this world. But we thank you, our Lord and our God, that this has all been part of your plan. That their fall and their going to the gods of this world and their battling with the Syrians and then them selling themselves into the hands of the Assyrians, they're going into captivity. That this was all part of the plan, that the promise of the Messiah might be delivered. That the foreshadowing of the coming of a king might be predicted and prophesied through the mouth of Isaiah. And that in the course of history, this people would return from captivity many years later. And they would reestablish a home in Israel. And that soon after that, a woman, a virgin, would be with child. And that the child would be born in Bethlehem. That the angels would declare his coming. That the prophets of the living God would speak his name. And that many would turn away from him, but a faithful remnant would follow him. And that he would be called the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the one who would reclaim lost sinners. And so today, Lord God, we celebrate Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Very God of very God, very man of very man. We ask our Father that you would work in our hearts, that we would trust the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would lean upon him in faith, that you would grow our faith, that you would take away our unbelief, and that, Lord God, you would strengthen us by your spirit this day and forevermore. In Jesus Christ's name, we ask all of this. Amen.